Hi, and welcome back to the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. This is episode 133, and my guest today is Megan Bentley. Hi, Megan. How are you? Hello. Yes, all well, thanks. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I mean, how British are we? There's an (laughs) absolute disaster going on out there, and we're going, oh, everything's lovely and fine. But in the world of sport and exercise nutrition, um, I think we can find some solace and distractions in today's uh, uh, podcast conversation. And I'm really, particularly under the circumstances, I you know I'm really appreciative of you being available to talk to me. Um, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a it's it it it's an absolute pleasure. Um, so look, we're going to talk about a topic that I think is. Um, well, it's going to be a to- the start of a series of topics that I'm planning, actually, mm-hmm. which is really at the base or the root of what I'm all about with this, which is this science to practice concept um, in sport and exercise nutrition. And as we were talking offline, you know, what, the thing that I'm obsessed about is evidence-based practice uh, in sport and exercise nutrition and, and very much about tackling, you know, things like, well, what is evidence, evidence relevant to practice and so on which is all very well and good, um, but we also need to bear in mind that, that just because we know something, even if we're able to differentiate good from bad, quality from flawed evidence and so on, being able to not only translate that into what is relevant for practice, but to actually get that information over to your, your target audience. Um, and um, a phrase that you use in your paper, which I love, is, is sort of, you know, the, the sort of deployment strategies or deployment tactics of whatever rocket science you've got in your head that you've amazingly managed to translate um it's still a challenge for lots of people to actually get their clients and all their their teams to put this into practice which really brings us into this realm of of behavior change Mm -hmm. um and this is an area which to be fair is not something that um um takes up much if any time in the training and education of sport and exercise nutritionists in our uh, clinical colleagues you know uh, whether it's dietitians or nurses or or doctors and so on they um, have a certain amount of training and education in evidence-based practice and behavior change counseling skills Mm -hmm. not so much in our field Um, we're very science focused yes so Let's bring this over to you, because I think just by virtue of that, I think it's obvious why this is an, an important topic. Um, and I, I, what made me sort of ring, you know, ring you up, so to speak, to want to have this chat with you is because I read your um, review, uh, systematic review, um, um, which is uh, sports nutrition interventions, systematic review of behavioral strategies used to promote dietary behavior change in athletes which um, you were the lead author of, along with uh, Nigel Mitchell and Susan Backhouse. Awesome trio, by the way. Right, yeah. um, good, mi- a, a fantastic mix of applied and, um, and uh, academic there. Yes, I'm very um, fortunate to be part of a, a great research team up at Leeds Beckett University in the that, US. Great. Well, well, let's come back to that then. So, so <laughs> you know, let's tell us who Megan Bentley is in the context of you know, the, the researcher, the scientist, the practitioner, and so on. And, and what got you into this, this area <laughs> to kick this off? 
Yeah, so I'm um, a PhD researcher at Leeds Beckett University and uh, with the English Institute of Sport. Uh, my PhD fundamentally is using behavioural science to understand the dietary behaviours of elite athletes. Um, so yeah, alongside that, I'm also a sports nutritionist uh, that works with EIS, a part-time lecturer within sport nutrition at Leeds Beckett University and also very proud to work for UK Antidope as well as a, a national trainer. Um, and I suppose personally I've always had a real interest in behaviour, how people behave the way they do, perhaps why that may be. Um, and I think I was first exposed to it as a topic during my undergrad, actually, because um, I didn't go down the kind of traditional route of sports science. Um, I studied nutrition, uh, health and lifestyle um, over at Sheffield Hallam University. And actually, behaviour change was a, a core module that run through that programme. Um, so that is how I kind of got into it as a topic. Um, and then... As we touched upon, I've been privileged since then to join an amazing research team um, who also have been uh, researching behaviour in a different context within doping um, for many years now. And so you're yeah, coming towards the end of my uh, PhD, starting to wrap that up, hopefully in the next few months. Yeah, well, yeah, best of luck. Um, we were joking again offline that, um, you know, because we're, we're in self-isolation, well, in a <laughs> self-isolation in lockdown here in the UK. Um, but of course, having recently, uh, well, ha currently finishing your PhD, and uh, I, I finished my doctorate a couple of years ago. But the uh, the impact of that is that that we've been well trained for isolation. So that's what I've been to, my friends, uh, to see the sunny side of all of this. Um, <laughs> for a while now. So yeah, let's go back because I, you know, like I said, that this concept of behaviour change is is one really important aspect of this gap that does exist between science and practice and for want of repeating myself you know knowing and doing or giving someone a plan and them actually not just having a go at it but you know having enough belief and trust in it to enact the advice and recommendations that we give them even if we assume that advice to be correct you know it's a big thing uh, for them to stick with it so you know I know the medical people you know their their issue is they might prescribe a drug but you know there are things like it being dose dependent and so on but ultimately compliance mm -hmm. is at the core of um you know is a core requirement of a successful medical intervention um physiotherapy etc cetera, etc cetera. so with nutrition you know we, we we give people advice um but we're not sitting next to them all day long guiding and instructing them yes we can use you know, sort of remote coaching apps and various other things that some practitioners do engage in somewhat, but ultimately they're sort of left to their own devices. Um, so, you, you know, you, you've studied behavior change. Uh, you've taken it to a whole nother level by, for example, in this research, you've looked at the various kinds of behavior change um, strategies, the theory that exists or is ignored uh, to a certain extent. Um, is, is what I want to delve into a bit, actually, because as I did say, I, I'm going to, um, in addition to what will be lots of juicy stuff we get into in this chat, I've got a number of other experts coming on where we're going to tackle certain aspects of behavior change as well. So I think this is be a fantastic series of uh, conversations to, to really help people. So let's just dial this back then. Um, um, firstly, just, you know, why, why did you, I mean, all the things you could have studied, <laughs> your PhD why this specifically uh, why this area um, and I know you're there's a collection of areas that you combine tell us a bit more about that 
Yes, how I like to kind of describe and position my research area is, I think if we look at the sports nutrition field, we're, we're very good at, uh, well, the most dominant approach anyway, is um, looking at nutrition more in a kind of reductionist form. So thinking about, thinking about more uh, nutrition physiology, which of course, research is really important to inform those uh, nutritional recommendations that we, we give to our athletes. Uh, but as you started to touch upon, actually, when you're a practitioner and you're working with a person who's a human, how do you actually deliver that information? that brings about most effective behavior change and for me that that's what sits within the gap the actual implementation of that recommendations that we have got from the evidence base and then when we start to think about talking uh, when we're working with athletes who are people who are humans and that behavioral element that's when we're starting to um, the interdisciplinary between nutrition and psychology so I think me personally always uh, always wanted to be a nutritionist but having a personal interest in behavior therefore psychology has kind of got me to, to this point so I'm, I'm really hoping to that my research is starting to encourage a bit more of a paradigm shift or an expansion you could argue where we actually start to see nutrition a bit more than nutrition physiology um, where we're getting athletes in the labs in quite controlled um, environments actually recognizing that in day-to-day living that they are exposed to uh, social environmental cues and pressures and they're thinkers they're feelers so how do we best how can we build an evidence base to help support practitioners in uh, bringing about positive behavior change um, and implementing those recommendations that we get from from research yeah and it's not just it's not just the practitioners because this bridge is a bi-directional bridge isn't it because Mm -hmm. we also need to make sure that the scientists, the researchers are providing the practitioners with relevant knowledge, tools, and information that our, our clients, our, our athletes are actually going to want to try and implement, um, you know, because there are, there are, there are things that m- might make good, interesting science, but they're not necessarily practical or relevant to uh, to our clients or, or, or for us to utilize as tools in our toolbox in, in, in practice. So look, I don't think there's any doubt that influencing people's behaviors is important. I think any of us who, I mean, even just on day one of actually being a practitioner, you realize just how hard that can be, whether it's one-to-one or in a, you know, trying to do a presentation to a team. It's like, Oh my God, what a nightmare. You know, how, there are so many different things that go on. And of course there's, you know, immense difference between people, languages, culture. Oh, there's just so much stuff going on there. But, you know, I've delved a little bit into behavior change as well. Um, and this is, a, I think, let's start with this. What, you know, what I, maybe let's try and define what we mean by behavior change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, w- 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 sort of how big is this field of beha- behavior change theory? Um, I, I guess more globally, in, you know, across the various, um, different sort of fields and then specifically in sport and exercise nutrition where are where are we with that in terms of the evidence base um, so yeah I like to more use the term behavioral science so using <laughs> science to understand behavior and um, for understanding the behavior in the sense that if we've got a bit of an idea of what's going on how can we then start to bring about positive change um, and then if you look at maybe the sports nutrition field, unfortunately, I don't think we have come very far with understa- of utilising it. Um, so 
there's currently probably about five studies that have looked, well, five studies that I've come across that have looked actually at the dietary behaviour of the elite athletes um, and tried to identify those influences and those factors, um, but not necessarily um, underpinned by behavioural science, um, which is quite problematic for us because then it doesn't really give us the so what, okay, well, now we understand the behaviour, what do we actually do about it as practitioners? Um, so which is why promoting and using behaviour change as a theory when exploring that behaviour um, can help give us a bit of a comprehensive understanding of what's going on but then also give us future direction of okay how do we then target those barriers and um, through the interventions and um, that we deliver um, so that's kind of what um, my other studies have done within qualitative inquiries have started to explore um, athletes dietary behavior both from the perspective of um, athletes and uh, from sports nutritionists as well that's brilliant. You, I, you mirror something that I mention all the time um, in my podcast, which is this concept of you can, but should you? Um, and uh, yeah, I think, yeah, just, you know, we, we get obsessed with certain things, but the reality is that, that getting that across that bridge is a pretty complex, um, pretty complex process. Let's just quickly talk about, you know, behavior. There's all kinds of behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are the, what, what sort of behaviors are we, are we talking about when we talk about behavioral science? You know, what is the focus of that science as it relates to sport and exercise nutrition? What's relevant there, Megan? So yeah, well, what's kind of quite challenging when we talk about dietary behavior as a term is it's actually an umbrella term that encompasses multiple behaviors. Um, so with, with the physical activity field, they've probably made quite big progress in designing intervention to increase people's physical activity levels because it's quite um, obvious and measurable if you see someone reduce their physical activity time and the intensity of that whereas dietary behavior is a lot more complicated and complex because of uh, the many factors that it will contain for example um, you know think about the stages of preparing um, a home-cooked meal you have to do the shopping you have to plan for that in advance you have to prepare and cook that food they're all individual behaviors within itself um, so it's therefore hard to quite reduce it to to its uh, c- uh, core um, well actually we have to look at it a little bit more holistically and recognize that it is a complex behavior and complex we are as humans and you know i think i mean sports nutrition just in the last 10 years has gotten more and more complex mm-hmm. you know when we started out sort of talking about, you know, just fueling and, you know, uh, protein and then maybe getting a little bit more excited about leucine thresholds and so on. Yeah, I mean, now there's so much, um, you know, nutritional periodization and, you know, um, uh, all sorts of stuff we could, we could spend time on. But you, 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 you mentioned um, sort of contextual factors. Interestingly, contextual factors within behavior um that's something i think that sounds interesting to me maybe you could sort of delve into that a little bit oh yes this is when we're talking about um the actual kind of components of an intervention or the Mm. service delivery from sports nutrition um so yeah you have the actual kind of bits that you do to bring about change so it can be uh, it can sit within uh 
an overarching intervention function. So the function in which that intervention intends to serve, is it to educate, um, is it to persuade, um, and I'm starting to draw upon uh, the theory that I've used in my PhD, which is the, the behaviour change wheel. Um, so you've got those components to an intervention or our service delivery as a sports nutritionist. Um, but then the context factors are also fundamentally important in the sense of you know the mode of delivery. So how was that um, intervention delivered? Was it face-to-face? -face? Was it online? Um, and then you've got the um, location as well, where it took place, um, as well as the intensity and duration. So all these things are important when we're trying to uh, understand uh, the components of an intervention. Therefore, what uh, was it that helped to bring about um, its effects? And is this a pretty black and white thing or is it in itself a highly nuanced area as well? Um, with sport nutrition, probably breaking it down to those components might not have been articulated before. Um, but it's yeah, very, um, I suppose, complex within the high performance sport um, in the way that we operate as practitioners. Um, always kind of be um, not necessarily always prearranged. It can be you know last minute. Um, I have to be very adaptable and flexible within our our, our role. Um, yeah no well that's uh, i think that's an important thing isn't it is the the again this is something i i like to talk about tools in the proverbial toolbox um you know we've got our nutrition strategies we've got um tools to inform practice whether it's a set of skinfold calipers or you know blood testing kits or so on you know the the sort of counselling um, and behaviour change strategies and techniques are just another tool in the toolbox. And of course, you know a, um, a, a masterful practitioner is someone who's able to not only have those tools in their toolbox, but also know when to use them and when not to use them. Of course, which is why being aware of the strategies and the evidence that exists behind them, and you know the underpinning science and so on, so that you can have that strength of uh, not just knowledge and mastery but also you know confidence in them because uh, mm. my understanding of this and in my own practice is my own level of confidence in itself is a behavior change <laughs> technique yeah. my enthusiasm their belief in my belief and ability and skill sets and, and so on I mean it gets pretty uh, gets pretty complicated so it really does the, there's there's a few things I wanted to get into because uh, not everyone knows necessarily what we're talking about. Some will have had behavior change um, education in some form or another, and some have had none at all. They'll have heard the term more almost mm. certainly. Um, but maybe we could sort of get into this a bit more. You, you use the term behavioral science, um, you know, behavior um, uh, change theory, maybe you could just give us uh, uh you know you don't need to be a textbook on this <laughs> but maybe you could just give us a little bit of an overview that you feel our, our listeners might might value in this general concept of of you know you're you're in a you've met someone and they said well what what even is behavioral science as it relates to sport and exercise nutrition yeah so for me i like to break it down as being really simple so behavioral science is simply taking the time oh, to understand the behavior that we're trying to change so when you work with individuals what is their uh, barriers and enablers to achieving uh, that, that target behavior so simply taking the time to understand what's going on there is really really important so it's part of the kind of needs analysis process that a lot of uh, practitioners will do but bringing more an evidence-formed approach to that by drawing on a theory and um, ensuring that we are uh, considering all the components um, 
that influence our behavior. I think people typically assume that, you know, with superior nutritional knowledge, it'll bring about positive dietary behavior change. So therefore we want to understand their knowledge, but it's a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot more other components. So um, taking time to understand the behavior and the kind of what's argued in the literature is actually maybe that's a reason why many behavior change interventions within the healthcare setting anyway um, has failed because people uh, don't take time to understand it, not comprehensively anyway, and they kind of jump straight to assumptions or hunches of those perceived barriers to change. Uh, for example, oh, it must be a, a knowledge deficit or they must not... Um, must not have um, the motivation to it, they must not care. And actually it might be something, something else. So by applying more of an evidence of formed approach to understand the behavior, i.e. by drawing on uh, a paper change theory, um, guides that process um, in more an evidence-based way. So it gives us justification as to uh, what we've done and why we've done it. Because um, once we've identified those barriers to change, we can then use appropriate intervention strategies to target that, that particular barrier. Um, and as I said, that's what I'd argue is kind of the evidence-based approach, taking time to understand it um, and drawing on theory to guide that process. Uh, yeah, music to my ears. And you, again, said something that I like to bang on all about all the time is, yes, we need to be evidence-based or we need to use evidence-based tools, uh, knowledge and so on. But we as practitioners, when applying evidence-based science into practice, we need to be practicing in an evidence-informed manner because yes. applying something that's evidence-based but into the wrong context, for example, is no good. It's not going to work. And mm -hmm. I guess that's something I got from this paper, for example, is, you know, there there is a lot of different types of theories and, you know, strategies that exist out there, which I think if you limit yourself to just understanding one of them and that's the methodology that you apply in your practice. It is at the expense of, for want of, you know, returning to my metaphor of the toolbox is just not having enough tools in your toolbox. Um, mm -hmm. cause, cause they don't all apply in every scenario as you've already, you've already pointed out. So, um, I mean, is, is this, is this an area where, um, there's a, you know, just several, um, you know, sort of behavioral type theories or strategies or are there loads of them or are they borrowed from, you know, from, from one area with general population or clinical populations and then used just in, you know, with athletes, like where are we with all this? Yeah. So I'd probably argue the reason why we haven't been using behavior change theory within our practice and kind of other practices, uh, disciplines is because there probably hasn't been a behavior change theory that is accessible or practical to people that aren't necessarily uh, psychologists or been trained in psychology. Um, but yet their job and their, their role involves some level of behavior change. And um, so what's really shifted the field over recent years um, is the development of this contemporary model called the behavior change wheel. Um, so if I could just share with you kind of an overview to, to, yeah. to that. So um, it's kind of uh, has multiple layers. Um, it's a, th a theory of many theories, so known as a, a meta theory. Um, so it was developed by uh, Mickey and, co uh, and colleagues um, in 2011, and they run the Behaviour Change Centre um, at the UCL. And um, what the um, Behaviour Change Wheel says is... Uh, at the core of the behavior change wheel is a first model I'll introduce you to, which is the, the COM-B. Um, so with that, it says that our behavior is influenced by 
three key components are capability, um, our opportunity, um, and motivation. Um, so capability includes psychological capabilities, that's um, our knowledge, um, and then uh, physical capability, which is our skill. So in sports nutrition, that would be, do we know what foods we need to eat, how much, um, and do we have the practical cooking skills to be able to uh, prepare that and meet those requirements? Um, and then you've got the uh, social and physical opportunities, that's the um, social influences and the, the context and resources around us to enable that behaviour. Um, and then finally, motivation is you must have the motivation to do uh, that behaviour over other competing behaviours. Um, and what's kind of unique within this model that is ca um, captured rather than pre-existing behaviour change theories that it actually recognises um, motivation in two components. So uh, our reflective motivation, so that's our, our plans, uh, our intentions, our beliefs, is this behaviour good or bad for us, uh, but also automatic motivation as well. So things that we do kind of more habitually without necessarily thinking. So unconsciously, um, and that probably, uh, probably driven by our emotions and um, emotional reactions, our impulses, um, wants, needs, desires types of uh, responses so that's the kind of the comp the combi at the core um and that's that can guide an understanding of the behavior um so typically within the sport nutrition field uh when we're from a systematic review we're very good at understanding do the athletes have the capability um so do they have the knowledge and maybe the cooking skills uh and that's where a lot of our interventions might fall um but it, understanding that actually there's two other components opportunity and motivation as well so once you've taken time to understand the behavior um, the what, what's very unique about behavior change will then allows you to map um, intervention functions um, to it once to to address those uh, deficits in the behavior so that's what's really exciting about this behavior change wheel because it actually gives you the so what okay now we understand the behavior what do we actually do about it um, whereas previous uh, behavior change theories I'd argue are probably just behavior theories because don't necessarily go to that next step um, so yeah the behavior change wheel has then got the intervention functions that's the uh, the function which your intervention tends to serve is it to educate persuade um, incentivize um, and then the the outer wheel is called policy categories um, which I find quite a, a confusing term so I like to put like to consider that more to be like modes of delivery so how will you then deliver that intervention is it through your service delivery face-to-face -face? is it through guidelines that you're going to um, put out within the sport or across the club uh, for example um, and then the other theory I'll um, uh, introduce you to or remind those of is um, what's in my pa uh, paper sorry is the paper change techniques um, so they also sit a part of the combi uh, the behavior change wheel because they can then be mapped into those intervention functions so certain certain behavior change techniques can be used within those intervention uh, functions um, and what again is really exciting about this model is it's not necessarily saying it's the new um, gold standard uh, behavior change theory it's actually a synthesis of pre-existing behavior change theories um, so the uh, combi model and again i'm going to throw another theory in there is um has been mapped to the theoretical domains framework um which is a synthesis of 33 behavior change theories of over 100 uh, uh constructs um so it has a, a large evidence base and literature underpinning it um but it's really simple 
in the sense that it hasn't used those 100 constructs, it's simplified them into three components, capability, opportunity, and motivation. So hopefully, as I said, those people who aren't behavior change experts, but their role involves some level of behavior change can actually start to draw on this type of um, theory um, to inform an evidence-based approach to their service delivery um, when bringing about uh, behavior change with their athletes. Brilliant. I mean, you've just, you know, uh, there's a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) There's certainly a lot there. And I was, you know, just looking at your paper here and and going, you know, for example, you mentioned that um, uh, there are 19 different behavior change theories that categorize the interventions um, in this field. 19, can believe it. So, what, I mean, just to give us numbers, let's have some numbers here. So we don't need um, to be accurate or whatever, but I mean, how, you know, just how many different, I guess, tools are there available to us to attempt to put into practice? Like how, 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 how tricky is this um, if people are just going to start picking one up and, and going with it um, without necessarily being aware of, for example, you know, not necessarily having read your paper, although they will have after this podcast, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just just how many sort of options and how, how much variety exists out there? Yeah, so if we speak specifically about the behaviour change techniques, there's actually 93 that have been identified. 93, wow. 93, yeah, by yeah. Uh, Mickey and colleagues. And yeah, as my system review highlighted, I think that we're currently only using um, around 19 of those. Um, now, a lot of these uh, behaviour change techniques practitioners will already be doing within their role, but not necessarily even knowing that they are called or have got a name um, of the behavior change tech of behavior change technique so the the taxonomy was to, uh, developed into or revised in 2013 and um, its main purpose really was to address the issue of under reporting um, within interventions um, and also the, the variation in terminology that was being used um, so when people were writing up uh, the interventions that they delivered some were calling it perhaps they used a diet diary other people were saying they used um self-monitoring as a behavior change tool so it was just to bring a bit of um, consistency with uh, the terms that are used when we're describing so we know exactly what was done um, so that the purpose of that is then so people can start to identify uh, what was actually done therefore what, what maybe was it that was effective and then we can start to communicate um, better to one another and um, articulate and then replicate um, those those types of interventions um, so yeah the common ones um, like goal setting, for example, action planning are probably ones that people are, are very familiar with. Um, but what I find quite interesting about it is if we work backwards from the meta theory that I just described, is if we're predominantly using a very small cluster of behavior change techniques, um, then you could argue that we're only perhaps targeting one component of, of the behavior, uh, for example, whether that's capability or, mo- or opportunity. So the importance of using a, a range of behavior change techniques is to take into consideration that within our ES, our service delivery that we are targeting those multiple components that influence an athlete's behavior so one thing i always like to think about with this is when we're looking at the you know the 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 evidence um the sort of two areas you know we yes we and we've covered in great detail in past podcasts things like translational potential um like with graham close all about that paper paper to podium concept yes you're looking at the the quality of that science or the quality of that information but then also how relevant actually is it in that context um and so it goes with these behavior change sort of theory uh and um, whilst there's a lot of a lot of these things that exist out there they do they obviously will vary of course in their quality 
And you looked at that to a certain extent in your, in your research where you were looking at how they arrived at their, and I'm talking about the, the, the sports nutrition uh, specific interventions and how they arrived at, you know, at their findings and, and so on. Is there, is there anything there that you, you feel is worth tapping into at this point? Um, so you said it was this, with regards to the use of theory within the sports. Yeah, if you like. Field. Yeah, I, I, I just think that you know, there, there's a lot of these. There's a lot of this. People are going to get interested in behaviour change, mm-hmm. and the temptation is to, you know, hopefully read around on the topic, but they're not necessarily understanding um, about the quality um, of the theory behind that and how relevant that is in the context of sport and exercise nutrition, which is, of course is what you're helping us to do with your, with your work. Um, it's impossible to summarize, um, you know, hours or years of work and research into a, a, a comment in a few minutes, but you know, is there, is there something that you feel that we should bear in mind at least with this regard? I mean, it's, presumably it's very early days. Yeah, well, my um, research that has, um, my qualitative research that has used the common model as a, a theoretical lens to understand um, the behaviour, um, athletes' uh, adherence to nutritional guidelines, that's the kind of target behaviour I'd kind of argue most sports nutritionists are trying to, to get. And again, that adherence, uh, adherence uh, to nutritional guidelines um, is flexible and dependent on what the sports nutritionist has, is giving to the athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, so within my qualitative research uh, with, with athletes, um, and sports nutritionists, uh, we actually fa- found that um, yes, athletes' behaviour is influenced by uh, their capabilities, their, their food planning and preparation skills. Um, but actually, one of the most uh, frequently reported themes that came out was actually more around the, the social and uh, uh, motivational side of things. So, recognising actually athletes um, being exposed to the high performance environment um, actually exposes them to unique um, uh, barriers to nutritional adherence. Um, for example, performance being a motivational driver uh, for nutritional adherence um, can be both positive yet can be negative. Recognizing the multiple so- uh, social agent um, social agents within the sport as well that the uh, athlete might be exposed to potentially mixed messages, especially if the nutritionist is not able to be full time within that environment and recognizing that perhaps someone else might be taking up that role um so we have identified that there is uh this combi model is relevant to the sports nutrition field um and it's illuminating that trying to uh, expand our understanding of that it's more to athletes behavior than knowledge and skill um and there's more to us and what we do than knowledge and skill as well um and that is around the opportunity and, and motivational and the side of things as well. Um, so I've worked with, uh, had the pr- uh, privilege of working with some amazing practitioners of the Institute of Sport and I'd argue that they, we should be using these guys and current uh, sports nutritionists who are, are working in sports now as our, our tools and resource and to help uh, develop this further and, and give mm. pr- uh, progress uh, to the topic within uh, the sports nutrition field. You made a, a, a comment there that I think is worth dipping into, which is um, earlier you, you, you said, um, you know, we were implied that in sports science or sports nutrition, um, you know, we're heavily into reductionism. Of course, that's science uh, at its very best within the sort of tightly controlled environment of lab studies and so on, particularly when we're um you know looking at um taking a more a, a sort of a more quantified approach to what we're doing 
Um, but of course, you know, you've also said that athletes are also human beings, which is something I mention all the time, which means that we do need to bear in mind the qualitative factors that exist, particularly when we're talking about using tools, strategies, and knowledge that have been derived from a quantitative approach, but we're trying to apply it in a qualitative environment. That, that's where things start to get rather interesting. And yeah. how do we, how do we, how do we synthesize that, that science um, from that perspective and apply it into practice? And I guess that's part of the art or uh, the need and the art of behavior change, isn't it? Yeah, and that you, you know you raise such a really important point, um, hitting the nail on the head. I think often we've, uh, as researchers, we can kind of fall down the trap of doing uh, research on athletes rather than doing research with athletes. And again, that's what I'd argue is being part of that evidence-informed approach as well, rather than imposing either a nutritional recommendation on them or imposing an intervention on them. And um, actually sitting with the athletes to hear their voices uh, of the barriers, the things that they're struggling when, when it comes to their experience of, of trying to adhere to these guidelines that are, are set forth, um, whether that's by the coach or, or the sports nutritionist within that environment. Um, and that's actually something that has come through as of, of being of real great value to my research, where when working with the nutritionist and, and the athletes of a particular Olympic sport, that I'm thinking of that the feedback that uh, that practitioner got um, from the athletes um, following a focus groups that I, I conducted with them and was really positive because they felt that, you know, they were being listened to and mm. therefore the interventions, that, uh, the, the strategies as the nutritionist was implementing was really targeting um, their needs and, and what they wanted. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating, not just because it's, you know, exciting, well, to some of us sort of knowledge <laughs> and theory and so on, but, but also it represents a very real way where practitioners who, who can, who can get more into this. And as a result of it, they, they will dramatic in many cases, dramatically enhance their practice, their ability to, to, to get people to do things, to, to result at the successful outcomes that we're after as practitioners. To, I mean, effectively, not just be practitioners, but be effective mm -hmm. practitioners. Yes. Um, and efficient as well. There you go. Yeah, mm. which is all part of it. Um, it's very much part of that. So if we, if we use the analogy of the sort of the toolbox um, for practitioners and being, uh, you know, an experienced practitioner yourself in an elite environment as well, what, you know, give, if we had to, if you, if you had to, you know, quickly pack a toolbox right now, <laughs> um, and I guess you, you can run with this however which way you want, and maybe I'm being unfair by just throwing this at you, but if you, if you were going to pack a toolbox, um, and this can even just be from your perspective, because obviously we've all got different environments we work in, but just give us an idea of just some of the things that you might use in your practice um, in the IS uh, uh, and maybe with different kinds of athletes. Is that something, have I asked you a, fa a, a fair question? Can you have a stab at that? I mean, no, that's a great question. That's oh, a really great question. I'm sure each practitioner will have their own, own responses. You know, mm. you find your way and you find your feet um, within your sport and, and within the role. Um, but definitely for me, going through this research journey um, has really sensitized me to the needs analysis process um, and actually 
but getting me to think more holistically about behavior as more of a, a complex issue um, not trying to reduce it to simple um, components as I've, as I've you know, touched upon numerous times now just around education and and skill um, so yeah that's actually um, we, we might get on to it later, at a later date but that's actually what um, has the kind of the end product of my PhD and, and that's developing a sports nutrition and behavioral assessment tool that guides guides practitioners um, throughout that process uh, of what that would look like in a sports nutrition context when we're talking about capability of opportunity and motivation so yeah it's definitely um sensitized to me in being kind of more comprehensive and holistic when I'm, I'm working with an individual and i think um, i'm probably quite fortunate in the sport that i work in it's actually quite a small world-class program um, so i do work quite um individually one-to-one and know my athletes um very well and i'm in a fortunate position to to be able to do that um, but equally uh what it's um kind of highlighted to, to me as well is working the importance of working in collaboration with the multidisciplinary team um so if you're an athlete for example you know emotional barriers is something for their um a barrier to their nutritional adherence is how can i you know team up with a psychologist um, in order to best support that athlete um yes it is a nutritional um uh target behavior i'm trying to achieve but if there's an emotional component in it how can i perhaps team up um, and work in collaboration and um, to, to best support that athlete and um, it's the same with um in the english institute of sport we work we have a performance lifestyle as well um, so if we've got an athlete that is transitioning to university or to a centralized training program and if the behavior i'm um, targeting is around food planning and preparation is it something that could, again could be work working in, in collaboration with the pl to best support the athlete um, as well um, but interestingly, what I think, and you mentioned it before as well, uh, within my kind of toolkit as a practitioner, which I think we should never underestimate the value of, is uh, the ability to build relationships with, with people and, and with athletes um, uh, and to kind of build their trust in a way, um, which uh, I don't know what your thoughts on that. It most certainly does take time, but is uh, very impactful. Um, in but any with, relationship, really. Yeah, yeah, and I must admit, my um, for, uh, just to share with you uh, a finding from my uh, focus groups with the athletes themselves, um, it, uh, I started a theme called um, person-first approach, uh, and athletes really valued a sports nutritionist who'd, who recognised them as people, not just athletes, and took into consideration their, their well-being and their emotions, um, because a finding was the fact that the high-performance environment can cause uh, emotional uh, distress around uh, pressures on performance and pressures on body composition. Um, but the nutritionist can actually be someone that can be a protective factor in um, supporting them through an approach which recognises them um, as people. And that was something that um, they really valued um, and was really important to them. Yeah, well, it, uh, one of several key components of evidence-based practice is the need to... Um, take into account and respect and be sensitive to the individual needs and preferences of the individual. Um, and often that happens, particularly with young, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, fresh graduates as they just start throwing science at their, at their athletes, both language, um, you know, they start talking science and mm. you know, the, the clients, the athletes have no idea what you're talking about, but also you know, they're, they're literally what they read in, you know, on that page in the research, they just throw at their, at their athlete without considering all these things that we've just discussed, um, mm. you know, as being, as being important. 
but this is the this is where the uh, kind of it gets quite complex when we talk about behavior because you're not just looking at the barriers and enablers for the athlete but you're looking at the capability opportunity and motivation of the sports nutritionist as well so how can we best prepare and equip athletes entering high performance support um sport that can navigate that that environment um, and have those skills uh to hand early early on really so they can really hit the ground running so it just extend upon that value really valuable insight that you just gave us from your perspective but you know given given the where the world was going before this horrible <laughs> pandemic hit us um but the the reality as we were talking offline is you know i i, I do feel that practitioners are going to have to learn to adapt rapidly to this new world that we're finding ourselves in and that's going to include ironically in the same way we're doing this podcast which you know uh, we're doing through um uh, i use something called zoom uh similar to skype if our listeners aren't familiar with that but this is also a method of communicating with clients uh for example um you know we're, we're you know the digital age is is not necessarily just in that allowing us to do that which is very personal it's just you and me having a conversation here yes we're, we're recording the information to share with everyone as this podcast but if we put this into the context of, you know, um, acquiring nutrition knowledge and information that we as the practitioner are trying to get to our client, our athlete, all these things that we talked about and the various barriers that you mentioned, one big barrier is the huge amount of noise that comes from social media. So, you know, the minute they stop that conversation with the practitioner, whether it's face to face or via remote counseling or whatever they're being bombarded for the rest of the day by twitter instagram so on and so forth and this mm. for me represents both a challenge but also an opportunity for someone who's able to master um behavior change um, um you, you know as a, a, a as a tool in their toolbox and as a very powerful strategy you know bearing in mind that you are going to be in that situation yourself with your athletes um you know, is there something there that, that you feel, um, you know, that is, is something you can draw upon to help you deal with that? What, I mean, what are your experiences in helping to deal with all that noise in your behavior change strategies with your own clients and athletes and so on? Again, yeah, drawing on um, my research, the athletes, and also uh, my personal experiences, I think athletes, when they are within a world-class program uh, and very fortunate to have uh, a regular nutritionists uh, who's there um, maybe in full, t uh, full time or uh, a few days a week um, within the focus groups that I do with athletes what they shared with me is actually having someone within that environment consistently and regularly and um, someone that they've obviously built a relationship with over time um, was actually really beneficial because they didn't necessarily listen or trust the noise going on elsewhere they would only recognize uh, or take the advice from the nutritionist in that environment however the problem occurs is if there's sports where they haven't got access to a full-time nutritionist then that is probably going to be problematic because we have to recognize that actually someone else is probably likely going to be taking up that role within the high performance environment if not um, the athletes will be getting that information elsewhere so another theme that came through from my focus group with uh the sports nutritionist was uh, a term that I called a stretch service. Um, so ensuring that as a sports nutritionist, we have sufficient time and resource um, 
for the so we can be present and we can athletes can be exposed to evidence informed recommendations and um, so i'm kind of arguing that they needs to be more of us uh, more of the time and i think there needs to be a bit of a, a shift in uh, the perceived value of the sports nutritionist within sport um to allow us more capacity and time to do that within the sport yeah i mean again this is i can see multiple podcasts coming off the off the back of this but you know like for example a way that I would deal with that um, either with teams that I might consult with, which could be say one day a week or even, you know, less than that where they might have a younger practitioner in setting or a, um, somebody on work experience or whatever. And I might be playing a consultancy role. One way of tying that in using technology can be things like WhatsApp groups and so on. You know, it's a bit like in marketing out of sight is out of mind. Mm. Um, so you can stay, you know you can you can you can have their attention far more regularly than one can imagine but of course that is a tool of communication that if you don't know what you're doing <laughs> you can really mess things up um but i i guess i guess you you can split some of these things up can't you like so from an individual level changing um human behavior is is obviously very difficult but there are some important characteristics that we as practitioners need to have um, we need to be credible. We need to be reliable. Uh, we need to be able to, um, we need to be capable of, of some degree of intimacy, obviously not in the wrong way. Um, and um, I mean, this thing, we need to be trust, trustable and trustworthy, of course, but also credible, mm-hmm. um, which I, I, it would be interesting. I know one thing that people sort of wonder, well, you know, things like the qualifications that they've got having um you know certain levels of credentials being registered and so on it's it's not just about opening doors uh to jobs and positions like for example you can't get a job at the is if you haven't got the right qualifications because we all know someone can set themselves up on the internet as a nutrition coach or whatever and do whatever they want um but some of those barriers to to trust and to buy in particularly in an informed client um you know i'll be interesting to see what you think you know what what sort of things do you think play a role at least what have you seen in the research that that's important in that in that area um so we're talking about you know credibility as a sports sports nutritionist yeah generally i think well because a lot of people that are listening to this podcast uh you know they're either they're not just current sports nutritionists some of them are going to be aspiring sports nutritionists one way or the other they're not necessarily going to um, get to work at the IS, for example, but they will be able to work, say, with, you know, recreational athletes. Um, but there's a certain, there's a certain, there's a certain aspect to a, a client or a patient believing in what someone has to say. Um, and I use the word credibility, um, their perception of you knowing, you know, you, you know enough for, for them to believe in what you've got to tell them. And it isn't based on the fact that you look good and you've got a six pack and, and so on. I mean, presumably there are certain things in your toolbox that would include, you need to have maybe the right credentials. Um, you need to have the right communication styles. And obviously you, you need to have technologies and various other things that enables you to, to engage in this behavior change environment. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts to add to that on that? Yeah, I do feel that one of the kind of big recommendations from my research is actually, I think we need to, um, 
within all sports nutrition programs, it would be great if we could have behavior change as a, a core component to that, to that program. And it is considered to be kind of common practice as part of our, our training, um, as opposed to being a kind of the, the exception that happens in some programs, but not, not all. Um, yeah. So that's the one of the big arguments that, you know, um, I want to put forward is I think it should be considered to be um, core, uh, core criteria for a knowledge of our um, of our profession and perhaps something that the SCNR should recognize within the competency framework to encourage um, sports nutrition programs, both undergrad and postgrad, uh, to actually include that within uh, the criteria to encourage uh, the education of that within those programs. Um, but going a step further and thinking about perhaps the barriers to that is recognizing that, you know, the sports nutrition academics going to need to be kind of upskilled and well-versed to be able to deliver that content. So perhaps there's, there's a time now where there's a need to collaborate with um, different disciplines, for example, health, uh, health psychology or behavior change scientists to help upskill us and be able to deliver that content for uh, future sports nutritionists as part of our, our core development, really. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I, being for many years in the cold face of practice, I wish I'd known about this stuff. <laughs> I mean, mm. you, you, of course you learn by doing and you learn, you learn by not just by making mistakes. Obviously you don't want to make too many mistakes, but you certainly want to learn mm -hmm. from those mistakes, but we can help people by making this, this knowledge, this science, not only, um, you know available for, for them to be more evidence-based but but as we keep banging on about being evidence-informed mm -hmm. and being um competent like you say at actually doing this and and not just competent but really damn good at it um and uh you know that's 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 at the end of the day that's why we are being hired for this this roles we're not we're not just part of the furniture we're there to do a job and our job is to help our athletes our clients mm -hmm. achieve their goals and i think you used the word earlier not just competently but efficiently um because yeah. we don't have a lot of time half the time or your clients if you don't get results fairly quickly and again this is a behavior change thing isn't it mm -hmm. if you don't actually get some results fairly quickly they lose trust in you or belief in you yeah and actually yeah part of my, my final study for my phd where i actually started to explore the barriers to sports nutritionists in being able to implement evidence-based practice when i say that i mean use behavior science within their role um it was uh the need for training and education within it to be able for them to be able to uh, confidently apply that and, and use the tool that i've developed um because it you know it's varied massively between um what's great about the sports nutrition profession is people come from different pathways and perhaps if you come from the dietetic pathway that's probably going to be something that's quite fundamental to your um, skills and your, your training that's been developed but um, if you come perhaps through the sports science route I think there's a, a massive a massive gap there as well um, but the other kind of barrier that was highlighted as well is actually given that we are in a stretch service and some sports nutritionists might be only be operating uh, one day a week for example you know uh, are we given the capacity to develop and evaluate our services uh, so until we kind of address the issue of limited time and resource unfortunately I think this will be something that um, existing sports nutritionists will always be will be up against at the moment when we're talking about the implementation of behavioral science uh, within their roles um, and also um, the need for support from influential leaders as well within the high performance environment to allow the sports nutritionists a bit of uh, scope to trial these things and, and take time to design and take time to um, evaluate this 
uh, their service. Uh, some sports nutritionists shared with me that, you know, in some um, sports, uh, you kind of get told what you, the players or the athletes um, need to be receiving when it comes from an intervention. So is the high performance environment set up in a way that allows the sports nutritionists to take that evidence informed approach by taking the time to understand the athletes and their, their barriers and, and therefore design um, an efficient evidence-based uh, service. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. And my final point on, on that, you make a good one is, uh, you, you know, very much of this is ideally put into uh, a one-to-one individual process, but of course a team is a, you know, is a, is a lot more than just one person, but they're still individuals and we still need to, you know, find a way of engaging them on an individual level, which like you say is incredibly difficult. I mean, for years I worked in uh, for many, um, as a nutritionist as part of many, mm-hmm. um, rugby teams, professional rugby teams. And, uh, frequently I, I, I was only given one day a week, you know, and how are you supposed to do that? And you say mm-hmm. stretched. Yeah. They're, they're either stretched. Well, they can be stretched for various reasons, can't they? But the reality is, um, not so many yet, um, get to be full-time practitioners. Yeah. So, um, the, the, you know, again, to reiterate the, the, the strength of this approach, enhances your efficiency um is really important obviously mm-hmm. you're targeting the appropriate barriers to change rather than throwing something at it and hoping it sticks or it gives a go but yeah that would be kind of future direction i think for the field be at to actually implement this in practice and evaluate the uh, uh, acceptability within the high performance environment both by practitioners and the broader uh, athlete support personnel team sports science medicine team um and also um, it's uh, practicality as well so how practical is it to be able to implement um, behavioural science in into their role as well so that's kind of uh, we know we need to be evidence informed there is a science there is an art to behaviour change um, but what is um, the barriers to the implementation of that within the high performance role um, so that hopefully give us uh, understand under, if we understand that, hopefully, that give us more future direction of the specificity of this within our world uh, beyond just um, health psychology, which is predominantly being used at the moment. Fantastic, Megan. I'm really. We're going to have to draw this to an end. We've. Uh, I think what we've what we've got here is is a really a really interesting conversation, and you you have provided, I think, a really a really strong appetizer. Uh, uh, to get into this more, which is, you know, I, I mentioned I'm going to get some other people on, uh, and I would very much like to have you back as well. Um, there's some areas I think that we could spend a lot more time on. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, so hopefully you'll be able to come back and we can focus on, on maybe uh, one or two areas a bit more in a in a separate podcast. Because um, I think this is for reasons that I think have unravelled in this conversation. It's just such an incredibly important area. So thank you for doing your research and, and contributing to the body of knowledge thus far. Um, if people, I mean, I'll, I'll link to your, you know, the, the papers and so on that you have um, produced um, and um, upcoming podcasts and so on. I'll backdate those into, into the notes. Um, but if people want to follow you uh, um, in the real world, so to speak, not like a stalker, <laughs> but social media, that sort of thing in this modern era, well, what's the best way of, of keeping tabs on what you're up to? 
Yeah, the best place probably to reach me to contact me is probably on Twitter. Um, so that's at Bentley RN Megan. Uh, equally, if people aren't able to access my papers, please just drop me a line on ResearchGate and hopefully I can pass that through. Yeah, a lot of people don't realise that the researchers, and, and I've contributed a bit to the research, you know, we're sort of gagging to get people to read this stuff. And people can be very British about this and go, oh, I don't really want to disturb you, but it's, yes, please. <laughs> yes, all, I'm always all... very, very grateful when people express interest and support in our research. And the, the support so far has been fantastic, which is really exciting because the sports nutrition field is really starting to evolve and hopefully we'll see a big paradigm shift um, over coming years, which is really exciting. I agree. Well, it's exciting field for us to be in isn't it i i love this stuff on a daily basis and uh it should be the new contagion you know sports nutrition is amazing uh fantastic um to have you on megan thank you so much for thank you very much your time today um uh i um suggest everyone goes to our website at www.theiopn.com where you can um, access um, all the notes and everything to this conversation, but also all the other podcasts, uh, the backlog, and also the future ones that we're going to be doing on this topic. Um, and I, of course, am Laurent Bannock. I look forward to bringing another episode back to you very soon. Take care, everyone.